My name is Andrew Kirshner. I'm so glad that you're here to worship with us. We've already experienced a great time of worship through music, where we are able to call out to the name above all names. We experienced a wonderful time of worship where we got to celebrate what Jesus did to earn status as the name that's above all names. He's the one who saves. He conquered death on our behalf. And now we get to continue worshiping as we dig into God's word. Today's text is from Philippians chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles, you can flip open uh, to that section right now. And Philippians chapter 2 contains one of the most significant Christological passages in all of Scripture. Christology is the study of the doctrines involving the nature, person, and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. High Christology embraces Jesus' eternality and divinity. Low Christology, on the other hand, loses the reverent awe owed Jesus as God. We live in a day where biblical doctrine is commonly neglected or even shunned, and sometimes even by people in God's own house. I've heard folks tell me before, we want to know how to live right, not about all those fancy doctrines, as if the two were in opposition to one another. In the past, I've been asked not to go so deep in my preaching, but to put the cookies on the bottom shelf, so to speak. I had a preaching professor in Bible college who said, you always want to make sure you put the cookies on the bottom shelf, because you never know who's going to be there, so put the cookies where everybody can reach them. And right away, I fought back against that, and I said, no, I want to put the cookies on the very top shelf, where people have to get up on their tippy toes and reach and stretch and then they get the reward of the good cookie. Now, don't worry. I always put some cookies on the bottom shelf. Sometimes they're oatmeal, oatmeal raisin and not, not chocolate chip. So you got to stretch for the chocolate chip. But I want you to be willing to do that. I want you to be willing to stretch. And the reason that so many people want the cookies on the bottom shelf exclusively is because a lot of folks think that theology is somehow impractical devoid of real-life application, as if it was resigned to the realm of seminary students and professors who just like to debate about the finer things of God, but they don't really have anything to do with how we actually live. When we buy into this anti-intellectual approach to the Christian life, we're forgetting that the Apostle Paul did not write these profound doctrinal sections of Scripture to theologians. He wrote them to regular people. He wrote them, including our text, which is maybe the high point of all New Testament Christology, to regular people at church. He wrote them to soldiers, to farmers, to housewives, to slaves, to everybody to show the impact that living a life worthy of the gospel has. But it's impossible to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ without a thorough knowledge of Christ and the doctrines surrounding him. Sadly, however, knowledge of doctrine is woefully weak and it's declining all the time. According to the Legionnaire's Biennial State of Theology survey conducted by Lifeway Research Group in March of 2020, 78% of Americans think that Jesus was the first and greatest creature that God ever made. 
That is a terrible heresy called Arianism, thinking that Jesus is somehow not eternal, but that the Father had to whip him up as a creation somehow. 78% of America thinks that's who Jesus is. And even worse than that, 65% of evangelical Christians believe that Jesus is the first and greatest creature that God the Father ever created. That is woeful, but it gets even worse. 52% of Americans believe that Jesus was just a good teacher and not divine at all. And on top of that, 30% of evangelical Christians believe the same thing, that Jesus was just a good moral teacher and that he was not divine in any regard. That's sad. I believe that the decline in the knowledge of doctrine within the church has resulted in increased division within the church. I think they go hand in hand. As knowledge of doctrine decreases, division and disunity increases. And there is some disunity going on today. People in church aren't getting along. Frustration, anger, resentment. These are now common responses to disagreements that God's people have with other people of God concerning areas of politics or social issues, whether or not we support the police, how to run a school, what's taught in schools, how to operate a church during a time of virus. People are upset about a lot of things. And they're confusing straight line issues with jagged line issues. But Philippians chapter 2 cuts through all of that with a straight line obligation facing every person who pledges allegiance to Christ. And that obligation is to live differently, to embrace unity, and to value others, and to be concerned with the needs of others more so than the needs of ourselves. Within this text in Philippians chapter 2, we will read inspired high Christology that should change our lives in real and tangible ways. It's significant that the Apostle Paul did not write this section of Scripture to correct some heresy or to combat some theological error. He's writing about a very personal and practical subject, how Christians can get along with one another. At the heart of our relational problems with one another is self. Self is always the problem. To live in harmony, we must learn to die to self and live for others for Christ's sake. And to illustrate this point, Paul sets before us the person of our Lord Jesus Christ as the example of ultimate humility. Here's the main thing I want you to know. Here's the main umbrella statement under which everything else I say this morning falls. A solid theological understanding of Lord Jesus Christ is the foundation for how we can get along with one another and interact with the society around us. A solid theological understanding of Jesus Christ is the foundation if we want to promote harmonious relationships, we must grow in the humility that Jesus modeled in his incarnation and his death. For when we understand who Jesus is and what the incarnation is, and the fact that he died for us, we can take that same model and seek to live harmonious lives. 
If we want to promote effective evangelism and be bold to the culture around us, we must embrace the doctrines of Jesus Christ's incarnation and his exaltation, knowing who Jesus is and what the incarnation means and what the exaltation of the Lord Jesus is will help us share the good news with everyone around us, and it will help embolden us to speak the truth to a culture that disagrees with what we have to say. So this morning, let's look to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Follow along in your scriptures or on the screens behind me. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any ten, a common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This incredible text is all about how we get along with one another. How we reach the world around us. But the reason we can get along with one another and the example of people getting along with one another is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. So in order to do the things that we're called to do, we must understand the one we're called to worship. Again, a solid theological understanding about Jesus Christ is the foundation for how we can get along with one another. When you think about the first five verses of Philippians chapter 2, it's a big conditional statement. It's a hypothetical statement. It's an if-then. If God is good in all the ways we're about to discuss, then produce joy in those who discipled us by promoting unity, squashing pride, and embracing humility. That's what we've got to do. If you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, oh, and we have lots of encouragement from that, the collective efforts of all of us individually living lives worthy of the gospel, together we stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, which is the exact wording that Paul used in the end of chapter 1. If we have any comfort from his love, and oh, we have comfort from his love, because of his love, we are united to God the Father. We are justified, saved from the penalty of our sins, and we are declared righteous before the Father, not because of human effort, but because of divine accomplishment. Oh, his love is comforting. 
if we have any common sharing in the Spirit, oh, and there is only one Spirit with whom we can share, striving together as one towards Christ-likeness by collaborating with the Holy Spirit as we keep in step with Him. This is the common pursuit that you have and that you have and that I have and that different Christians all around the world unified together participate in, collaborating with the Holy Spirit. If you have any tenderness, any compassion, this means if you have any care or empathetic concern for one another or maybe even somebody, I don't know, writing this letter to you from jail, then... Verse 2 says, make my joy complete. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, by having the same love, and by being one in spirit. And Paul explains what that means in verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. You've got to squash your pride and embrace humility. Now, I know something about pride because I'm a prideful fellow. And I remember when I was first married to Kim, I drove a 1988 Volvo that didn't have a radio. It provided for wonderful conversation opportunities. And as we would drive to Sheldon to preach or drive to Tulsa to visit her folks, we didn't have a radio to listen to, and so we would talk. And you know what I would like to talk about? Deep philosophical theological truths. And you know what Kim didn't like to talk about? deep theological philosophical truths. And so she got very sick of me asking the question, hey, could Jesus sin? Not did he. We know he did, didn't. But could he? Could, did he even have the possibility? And working through that for like seven years before I came to a philosophically acceptable answer, which I'll preach about someday, but not this day. And so when our car broke down and it was time to buy a new to us car, Kim was very excited. And we got one that had a radio. And now we didn't just have to talk to each other, we could listen to the radio. But I like to listen to talk radio, and so I want to hear the sports talk, I want to hear the political talk, and if we're going to do music, I want classic rock. But Kim likes to listen to contemporary Christian music. And so we would get in the car, and because I'm a guy full of pride, and I've got vain conceit, I would turn the radio on to the talk channel. And we would listen about politics, and we'd listen about sports. And then if it went to commercial, I'd flip to classic rock. And that's what we'd listen to. Because in my pride and my vanity, we were going to do what I want because my concerns mattered most to me. And then I would get back into the car at some point, and I'd see the station was to the contemporary Christian station, and I'd switch that right away. I didn't need to hear that. I needed talk radio or classic rock. And this is how I operated. Until one day we were talking about this exact passage, Philippians chapter 2. And in fact, in the old NIV explanation or translation, it says, consider others better than yourselves. And I really didn't understand that passage. And I said, how can you consider other better than yourselves? We're all one made in the image of God. And she said, that's not what it means. She, I don't think you really understand Philippians 2. And I went back and I dug into Philippians 2. And I realized I didn't understand it. She was right. She was right. And I had to understand, you know what? Jesus wouldn't listen to talk radio if Kim was in the car. You know what he'd listen to? He'd listen to contemporary Christian music because that's what my bride wants to listen to. And so when we'd get in the car, sometimes I have to remind myself, but I'll turn it to the contemporary Christian station. And most of the time, when I pull into the driveway, I turn it to that station, even if I've been listening to something else, so that when Kim turns the car on, it's already on her favorite station. I try to do it. Sometimes I forget. But I recognize you got to squash that, hum squash that pride and embrace that humility. 
Because you have to value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And Kim is interested in a better sort of music than the kind of radio I wanted to listen to. And so out of humility, I deferred to her in that. And we can do that on all sorts of things, but the foundation for that is Jesus Christ. And that's why verse 5 says, in your relationships, be like Jesus. Wow. Be like Jesus. It's hard to be like Jesus, who, being in very nature God, says verse 6, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Did you know that, in very clear terms, Philippians 2.6 says Jesus is God? Jesus, who being in very nature God, means Jesus is God. His pre-existence has always been there. Jesus is the divine logos. And verse 7 says, He made himself nothing, taking on the very form of a servant being made in human likeness. Philippians 2.7 says, Jesus is man. If you want the doctrine of the incarnation, you start with Philippians 2, 6, and 7. Well, speaking of the doctrine of the incarnation, allow me to get some philosophically high cookies for you right now. The doctrine of the incarnation means the enfleshment of God, God in the flesh. So when we say the incarnation, we literally mean that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He's fully divine and fully human. But how can we make sense of God being fully divine and fully human? How can this make sense at all? In order for it to make sense, we've got to understand three philosophical distinctions that are very important logically. The first is the distinction between essential properties and common properties. An essential property is a quality or characteristic that you have to have to be in a certain group. And a common property is a quality or characteristic that most people in that group happen to have. So think about human beings. In order to be a human being, it's essential that you have a soul made in the image of God and a hominid body. But it's common that most of our hominid bodies are between four feet tall and six feet tall. But some of us are taller than six feet. We still count as human. Some of us are shorter than four feet, but we still count as human. Because as long as you have a hominid body, regardless of where it is in its stage of development, and you have a soul made in the image of God, you're a human being. And so that's the first distinction we have to make. The second distinction we have to make is between an individual essence and a kind essence. An individual essence is everything you are. Take the total composite of everything you are. All your memories, all your history, all your stories, everything about you physically, that's your individual essence. The kind essence is what group you belong to. Hint, it's humankind. Now, that means you don't belong to frog kind or, or kitty kind or canine kind or divine kind. You're a human being. But speaking of human beings, there's a third distinction. And that distinction is between being merely human and being fully human. Now, if you are merely human, that means you are fully human. You're a person that has the essential properties needed to belong to humankind, but not to any other kind. But if you're fully human, that also means you're fully human. It means you have all the essential properties needed to belong to humankind, but you might belong to another kind, like divine kind. And so it's my contention that Jesus Christ is one individual, and his individual essence includes all the essential properties necessary to belong to both humankind and to divine kind. The essential properties of divine kind are being all-knowing, all-powerful, morally perfect, eternal, necessary, and part of the Trinity. Jesus is all-knowing, all-powerful, eternal, necessary, morally perfect, and part of the Trinity in virtue of being the divine Logos. Jesus is not the name that the second person in the Trinity was always called. He was, used to be called the Son or the Logos. Like in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. And then John 1.14, and the Logos became flesh. 
God is three in one. Jesus has always existed, and he also has all the necessary properties to be a human being because he is the image of God, and as soon as the Holy Spirit whipped up a hominid body for him that was specially created and not part of the biological process from his mom or his, uh, or his human mom or his human dad because Jesus has a body that's not connected. When you were created by mom and dad and God together, the body was started, and at the exact same second of conception that that started, that's when God created your soul. And so you started. You used to not exist, and then you did exist. Jesus has always existed from eternity past, and then when the Holy Spirit made his body, he entered that body. So Jesus Christ is a soul made in the image of God because the Logos is the image of God. And as soon as he has the body, he becomes a human being who's also God. Okay, but how do you explain that on a medium level cookie shelf? In four simple phrases. Memorize these phrases and you can explain the doctrine of the incarnation to anybody. One, Jesus is one person with two distinct and complete natures, divine and human. Jesus is human and divine together, but not mixed, together, but not mixed. They're complete and they're distinct, but he's one person with both natures. Phrase two, Jesus ceded the privileges of being God without relinquishing the position of being God. In verse seven, the Greek word here is uh, kenosis, emptying, and sometimes people think that Jesus emptied himself of divinity, becoming a man. No, no, no. Jesus never stopped being God. He just put his God powers in his pocket. He had to put his God powers in his pocket because if he ever relinquished the position of being God, then he was never God in the first place. God can't stop being God. That's logically impossible. So you get phrase three, which is that the Logos is the rational soul of Jesus, which is possible because humankind is made in the image of God. So in Genesis 1, and 7, when it says, God made mankind in his image, it's the image of Jesus that we are made in. Then when Jesus takes on the body, he becomes a human being. Well, he becomes kind of a regular human being, and that's phrase four. The divine aspects of Jesus Christ were largely subliminal during the incarnation, which is necessary for him to have a typical human experience. Jesus can't just walk around with all his God powers all the time. Then that would be the Mount of Transfiguration 24-7. Jesus can only reveal that for a tiny, tiny bit. No, he's got to be a regular guy so that he can be the perfect sacrifice. He's got to be human so he can die for humans, but also God so he can die for all humans. He's got to be a regular guy so he can be the high priest who understands what it is to be tempted and yet not sin. And so Jesus never gives up being God, but he gives up his God powers. It's sort of like he puts them in his pocket and he doesn't use them. So when he lives on earth, Jesus has to rely on scripture, just like you have to rely on scripture. Jesus Jesus has to pray to God just like you have to pray to God. And Jesus has to be powered by the Holy Spirit just like you have to be powered by the Holy Spirit. He's a regular guy. And so this is how you explain the doctrine of the incarnation, which is really, really important because verse 8 says, he's found in appearance as a human man and he humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. Jesus was humble. He was so humble, he wasn't born in a mansion, he was born in a manger. Jesus was very humble. He wasn't Superman walking around. He looked like a regular guy. Jesus was very humble. He didn't have rich, famous parents. He had poor, common parents. Jesus was humble. He wasn't the most popular guy alive at the time. He was a working man who took on a ministry. Jesus was humble, and he was humble even to the point of death because he would be obedient to death. 
So when Lord Jesus climbed the ladder down from the throne of heaven, the lowest rung is the cross. And the lowest rung, being the cross, is a torturous, horrible death. In fact, Paul says in Galatians 3.13 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, and he quotes Deuteronomy 21.23, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree or a pole. Jesus died a cursed death. And because of this obedience, we have the nature of Christ. He's human and God. We have the work of Jesus. He died on the cross for our sins. And now we get the exaltation of Jesus. The doctrine of the exaltation starts in Philippians 2.9. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, making him supreme over everything that exists and giving him the name that is above every name. Jesus is supreme above all. He's not the best thing God ever created. He is God. And because of what he did, dying for us and being raised from the dead and ascending and being exalted, he's supreme over everything. So when Jesus says in the Great Commission, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, he wasn't kidding. All of it is his. Jesus is God. And it's the name of Jesus we praise. It's the name of Jesus by which we live. In fact, John, in his gospel in, verse, uh, in chapter 20, verse 31, says these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And Acts 4.12 says that salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven by which mankind must be saved. Verse 10 tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, which is a clear reference back to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, uh, chapter 45, verse 23, where God says, I am God, there is no other. By myself, I have sworn. Before me, every knee will bow, and by me, every tongue will swear. But here in the New Testament, it says that at the name of Jesus, everyone will bow. That's because Jesus is God. Here it says that every knee will bow before God. But in the New Testament, it says that they'll bow before Jesus. That's because Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He's not just a good teacher. He is the divine son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God Almighty in the flesh. He's God. And every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And in heaven, the angels will bow. And the angels are powerful beings, but Gabriel and Michael, they will bow down before Jesus. Oh, they're powerful. They're so powerful, they can fight the devil. And if you remember from our study of the book of Daniel, every time Daniel sees Gabriel, he falls down as though dead, but Gabriel can empower him. And he's going to bow down before Jesus. Everyone on earth is gonna bow down before Jesus. Jesus is the king of kings. So human kings, they'll take a knee. Sports athletes, they'll take a knee. Politicians, they'll take a knee. Titans of industry, they'll take a knee. Everyone will bow before Jesus. And even under the earth, oh, Satan and all his minions, they will bow too. Everyone on earth, in heaven, and even under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord is a very important title that Jesus has. Lord is not his name. Lord is his title. His name is Jesus, and his title is God. That's what Lord means. Lord means God. Now, in the Old Testament, when you would come across the Hebrew word for God, which is spelled Y-H-W-H, pronounced Yahweh, 
The Jews were so reverent of the name of God, they would not say Yahweh out loud. So instead, they would say just the vowel markings around the word, and they would pronounce it Adonai, which translated into Greek is kurios, and both Adonai and kurios translated into English means Lord. So when it says Jesus Christ is Lord, it is very literally saying that Jesus Christ is God. Now, obviously, he's God. He's very nature God. Every knee will bow before him, and only every knee will bow before God. He is God. Paul is telling us that Jesus is God in every conceivable way he can tell us. And this is all to the glory of God. It's very important that we glorify God by calling Jesus Lord, especially to a Roman living in Philippi in the first century where you were expected to say, Caesar is Lord, and you weren't supposed to say Jesus is Lord. You were supposed to say Caesar is Lord and then drop off a little pinch of incense. But when the Christians recognized that Jesus was Lord, they refused to say it. They would not say Caesar is Lord. And some of them paid dearly for it. Some of them paid with their lives for it. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. And I will not call any other man God. I will not call any other man Lord. And this is to the glory of God. Jesus told us it was going to be this way. Think back to what he said in John chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Jesus says, The Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. We honor God by praising Jesus as God. We honor the Father by praising the Son as divine. A theological understanding about Jesus Christ is the foundation for how we can get along with one another and interact with society. How do we interact with society? Well, the incarnation and exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ should encourage evangelism and bold cultural interaction. If you know that Jesus is God, and you know that he became man, and you know that he died on the cross for your sins, and you know that God exalted him to the name above all names, and he's the one that everyone will bow before and confess, and you don't tell somebody about that, you don't really love that person. Evangelism is sharing the good news. The good news that Jesus Christ is king. Jesus Christ is God. God became man. And man who is God died for our sins and was raised from the dead. And he now stands as king over the whole universe. This is good news. And the supplementary good news is particular to you. You can be freed from the penalty of your sin, the power of your sin, and even the presence of your sin if you bow down before him and confess him as Lord. This is our evangelistic opportunity. We know the truth of who Jesus is, and so sharing the truth with other people gives them the opportunity to bow the knee before they're forced to do so. For Jesus will not force anybody to do it right now, but when he returns, time is up. And this is our chance to share this good news with as many people as possible. But how can you share good news with people who don't even believe in sin? When part of the good news is you can be freed from the penalty, power, and presence of sin, well, we can take the truth of who Jesus is and boldly, culturally interact with the society around us. Did you know that in the country of Iceland, they brag about having eradicated Down syndrome? Oh, they're not the best scientists in the world, and they didn't come up with a new genetic code to reverse Down syndrome, which is a literal impossibility. They just murder everybody with Down syndrome. 
In Iceland, you have to take a test when you're pregnant, and they look for certain genetic markers, and if you have a Down syndrome baby, you abort it. In the year 2020, there have been zero Down syndrome babies in Iceland, and the most they've had in any calendar year since their institute tried to eliminate Down syndrome was three. That's a really low percentage. They haven't eradicated Down syndrome. They've just figured out how to murder Down syndrome people. Now, this is near and dear to me, and not because I don't hate Down syndrome. I do, but I love my little guy with Down syndrome. And to think that some people think it's okay to murder him before he's born just because he's chromosomally different is abhorrent and sinful. And we must stand on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and proclaim that it is wrong to murder people. We must stand on the name of Jesus Christ and say to the laissez-faire sexual attitude of, our, the, of the society around us, look, we know that you guys don't think certain things are sin and that you try to explain away stuff from the Bible, but here's the truth. God made our sexuality for a purpose, for a reason. And when we divert from this purpose or reason, we're living in sin. And this doesn't just mean LGBTQ stuff. This means heterosexual people who are having sex before they're married, that's just as sinful and you gotta stop. We live in a world that's so sexually charged that we as the church have to stand up and say, God has a plan for sexuality because this is what we must proclaim. Repent. Repent because of the truth. So, here's what I want you to do this week. This week, I want you and your whole life, I want you to study doctrine. I want you to study the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Embrace the doctrine of the incarnation, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ so that you can know high Christology. Study Jesus and study high Christology about Jesus. Second, I want you to embrace that high Christology so that you can let that truth change your relationships and how you interact with your wife and what radio station you listen to and whether or not you do dishes and whether or not you participate with your kids and how you interact with other Christians in church. And I want you to embrace this truth so that the truth of it can change how you engage the world around us. We can't let the world around us boss us or tell us what to do. We can stand up to it. And lastly, I want you to proclaim high Christology and evangelism so that you can change the lives of everyone you know. If you love them, snatch them from the flames by proclaiming high Christology. It's the most loving thing we can do to anybody, and it's the only way that we can change society the way God wants society to be. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, we thank you for your perfect plan of salvation. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for having always been God, deciding to step out of heaven and becoming a man for our sake, dying on the cross for our sins and being raised from the dead for our justification. Thank you for being exalted. You are the name above all names, and we gladly bow our knee and confess you as Lord today. You are God. Jesus, you're my God and my Lord and I love you, but don't just take my word for it, and don't take any of our words for it. See it in our actions. This we pray in your perfect name. Amen. Now, during this last song, if you need to accept Jesus Christ for the first time and bow down before him and confess him as Lord, we'll baptize you and get that done right now. If you need to pray, come talk to Chris, come talk to me, but remember, high Christology, Jesus as God and Lord, 
changes your relationships and changes the way you interact with this world. Thank you, guys.